Chris Loker emailed me a couple of months ago with a <laughs> quite an odd request. He'd been listening to the show and he mentioned to me that he wanted to talk specifically about the peculiarity of our species and the flow of money in society. And I went to go look at his website because I found him very intriguing and discovered that he does a range of really interesting things, not least of which offers service to corporate leadership teams, uh, specifically around facilitation, strategic input, leadership development, and then also has this really interesting offering around interim executives, essentially loaning CEOs and loaning CFOs and those types of influential people to companies in times of transitional crisis when they haven't been able to find the ideal candidate to fill a position. I was really intrigued by this. Wanted to have a look at what he was doing, wanted to find out a little bit more about his journey out of the corporate finance world and into mindfulness, yoga, presence, and his application of those learnings and that consciousness to modern leadership. Chris was a fantastic guest. I loved this conversation and I look forward to your comments on this one. Enjoy the show. Chris, lovely to connect with you this morning. I see that we've swapped weather patterns. It's feeling very Cape Towny this side, and and it looks very Joburgy that side. I'd appreciate it if you'd consider swapping back. <laughs> Listen, the beaches have been open today, so this is the right day for Cape Town. We've got a perfect day. Gosh, yeah, you can finally appreciate that yeah. wonderful environment that you've got. I've just come back from Cape Town, actually, and I had five days of beautiful sunshine and, and couldn't take advantage of any of it, so... Uh, nice to see things uh, returning to, to some semblance of normal. Uh, yeah. Chris, we connected a couple of months ago over email, and you mentioned that there were you know, a few topics that we could possibly cover, and it was really exciting to see that a lot of what we'd spoken about on the podcast over the last few months are sort of central to your, your interests. And I, I had a look at your website, and I stumbled across this idea of outsourced executives or um, sort of temp corporate leadership. Um, I don't know how you refer it, but, but temporary executives. And I was just so intrigued by that. And in our conversation before the show, you, you mentioned that that's something that is relatively familiar to a global audience, but perhaps not something that is considered as an alternative in South Africa. Talk me through, is it Moksha or Moksha? Moksha. Moksha. What Moksha does in terms of temporary executive services. Yeah, look, I mean, you've alluded to it. I mean, uh, Moksha offers a range of, of different services and the interim executive is one of those. I guess what I also, also should say is that even in the developed world, it's not something that's highly publicized. It's not like a company is going to go out and say necessarily, I mean, if it's a CEO, they may not have an option, uh, but they wouldn't necessarily sure. publicize uh, that they have an interim executive in place. But it's far more often that you'll find it in the developed world and far less so in South Africa, although one or two mm -hmm. companies are actively exploring it. And really the idea is that often you don't have the opportunity to do adequate succession planning and yes. or you uh, you get rid of an executive um, and you haven't uh, had the time or opportunity to either employ externally or to cultivate and grow your own timber. And sure. you don't necessarily want to run a portfolio empty for a period of time. And that period of time can be, you know, interim, how long is interim? But generally I would say We've never done an assignment of over 12 months. Generally, I would say it's a okay. 6 to 12 month period um, that you're looking for a C-suite type individual. So it's a CTO, a CFO, a CEO in some instances. And you require somebody to kind of hit the ground running. 
and that's really course. quite a specialized skill and expertise. Uh, the example that I often use is the Chelsea example when they use uh, Gus Hiddink, I think it was, as an interim mm, mm. manager. Um, he was yes, the coach yes. of Holland, so clearly had skill and expertise in terms of management of, of senior players. Uh, he wasn't a permanent posting. It was during the international off-season, and he was drafted into Chelsea for a 68-month period where he did very well. So the same is true. <laughs> well, not necessarily that everybody does very well, but the same is true in a corporate context. You would you would draft somebody in that you're reasonably confident, can understand your sector, can understand your business, can understand complexities and problems, because often there are problems that precipitated the removal of the previous person. Um, and either hold it together or um, help get you out of that situation in a short period of time whilst you make a permanent appointment. Now, what we don't encourage is that that person becomes a permanent appointment because it's quite, it's a different skill set. Somebody yes. that can remain or can get something, get on top of something and understand something for a short period of time is not the same person that you necessarily want for a five, 10 uh, or a longer year tenure. So it's really about holding. Yeah, yeah. So the analogy of the, the football caretaker manager is a really interesting one because I, I guess likewise in the corporate context that the caretaker manager is often walking into a situation that's quite dire and needs to yeah. rescue a team from relegation or try and get a couple of points on the board. And I imagine you're, you know, not only is there a degree of complexity and conflict that somebody must walk into, but potentially crisis, uh, even. Yeah. So I guess finding clients that are in that position is less of a challenge than finding candidates who can fill that kind of role. How do you do that? How do you source the types of candidates that are ready and able to jump into a situation of that nature? Yeah, look, I mean, it's interesting because we've never marketed, I mean, in general, we've never marketed mm. as an organization and we've never marketed this as a specific service. Um, it's all been by word of mouth. And I think part of the reason for that is that companies can often not be self-aware enough to realize that they need somebody to hold. Okay. So it's like, of course, even if there's that situation, it's not necessarily going to lead to the company choosing that solution. Okay. So, um, and being an interim executive. So often it's, more about networks and relationships and word of mouth where somebody says, look, I know somebody that can help you um, with the situation or I know an organization that can provide you with somebody that helps with that situation. Um, so that's on the company side. From a candidate side, I think I might be the case study for that. You know, it's somebody mm. that's reasonably good in a corporate context but does not enjoy a corporate context. Mm. You know, so <laughs> it's somebody that is happy to fit into that situation for a period of time but doesn't want to deal with maybe the politics or doesn't want to deal with the careerism or doesn't want to deal with the complexity of managing hundreds of people. Um, mm. So there's there's a myriad of things or the paperwork or the document. You know, there's a myriad of things that come with the nature of a corporate. And there often are skilled resources that either have been through that loop and have gotten tired of that yes. um, and or just not suited to it. And, and really, again, that's a network. I mean, uh, we don't have a huge pool. I mean, we have uh, six associates that we use from an interim executive point of view. Um, three of those are in the CFO financial context. Um, so, sure. you know, it's not a huge amount either on the client side or on the candidate side, but there are people that can do a good job in that instance. Now, obviously, the opportunity to have that kind of intervention with a client is supported by an ecosystem of other services that you offer. And, and pretty much everything that you focus on 
by my best reading of the of the offering is around helping leaders succeed in the midst of complexity, but quite specifically corporate complexity. How did that offering develop over time? And you know, what is the typical entry point with a with a new client? Yeah, look, I, again, I think there's an originalism to all of our stories. You know, it's particularly true in this instance. I mean, I was a a corporate guy working in in finance and at a fairly senior level at a at a relatively young age, and I got mm. disenchanted with many aspects of the industry and kind of took a shot left and and opened a, a mind body yoga studio. So it was kind of like, for me as a person, there was this really convoluted and interesting passage, where after that I kind of came back to how do you do business anew how do you do mm-hmm. finance anew how do you how do you look at the future rather than the past and look at the way everything has been done previously and is there potential to craft a different message both from an individual perspective sitting in the company so how mm-hmm. do you make somebody enjoy that experience a little bit more also from an organizational point of view and and then from a strategic point of view so i think again a lot of it is is a manifestation of self in saying Like, guys, you knew me as the guy that was at Bank XYZ, but now I have a slightly different perspective on life. And uh, if there's an instance or situation where you can use the following service, you should consider it. So it's word of mouth, it's network, it's trust, it's, I don't want to be arrogant about it, but it's about doing, if you do a good job for somebody, it's likely that there'll be other people that they will tell about that. You know, our, our South African, particularly our South African corporate environment is pretty tight-knit and pretty small. Mm, um, mm. So likewise, you know, if we were to make significant hash-ups or not act with integrity, uh, that would very quickly come back to bite us. But in a positive or virtuous cycle perspective, I think it's the the point of entry is generally a phone call that says, can you help um, to us? And part of your solution to that, as you alluded to, is is this idea of mindfulness and self-awareness, right? They're all, are those, in your mind, are those very separate things or are they very much the same thing applied to a business context? No, it's absolutely the same thing. Uh, you know, one of the things that I learned, I stepped out of the corporate thinking that mindfulness and mind-body connection is about something that is separate that you need to go to a cave um, find your find your guru find your shaman um, mm-hmm. what I learned in that passage is it's not it's about living your life as it is currently with greater self-awareness and greater mindfulness so mm-hmm. that's very much um, in keeping I mean the name of the company which was the name of the yoga studio and the mind body um, practice is moksha which is the ultimate state of absolute freedom now mm-hmm. And this is this like uh, this idea of nirvana that exists in Hinduism, and it's not it's not about Hinduism as a religion. I just I love that concept of freedom, um, and it's not about going to heaven or going somewhere else. It's about mm-hmm. being finding freedom in everything that you do um, in your day, and and that's really that comes from self awareness. It comes from consciousness. It comes from uh, that mind body connection, and it's as relevant to an individual as it is to an organization or to a team. Uh, so it it imbues, it's embedded, it's woven into everything that we do. We don't push it because, again, you know, many corporates will kind of resist it if we led with that. Uh, yeah. But it's very much part of uh, part of what we do. Your philosophy. How how do you measure how free you are? Yeah, there's no measurement. I mean, it's kind of uh, it's <laughs> you know you are when you are. Um, and, and, and I don't think that there's an absolute freedom. It's about the pursuit 
of freedom. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. I think we are human beings, we are flawed and life is hard. So the pursuit of it is to get those moments, those snapshots where you looking at that beautiful sunset, not Instagramming it or selfieing it or whatever, and just appreciating it and just like realizing that this is my most magical moment. Um, you know, and I think it's about getting more of those and trying to get more of those and working towards getting more of those. And, and that can be in your, in yourself, in your nature, in your relationship with family, in your relationship with your uh, employees and coworkers. Um, it's in everything that you do, that opportunity to be free. So there's an element of presence for you. Is there a component to it that relates to the practical element of, of freedom in your day? Uh, you know, is there a way to measure how free you are in terms of how you spend your time or what your diary looks like? I mean, can we be that granular yeah. about it? Because I, I think about it a lot in terms of those those more practical metrics. And that's because I think I'm very I'm infantile in my journey around the notion of mindfulness and mm. still discovering the very basics of that. But I remember saying right at the beginning of starting Cerebra midway through the 2000s that one of the me- metrics for success for me was if I could if I could leave the office at any time and any day to go watch my son play a game of cricket. That that for me is, is a, a very practical measure of freedom in that I have the ability to dictate my own day and my own time. Is that mm. is that part of it or is that an oversimplification of the concept? No, I think it's 100% in line with it. I, I think where the complexity comes in is that, I mean, A, it's different for each individual, obviously. Mm-hmm. And secondly, what what I would rail against is this notion that simply by measuring and ticking that we are achieving, you know, and I think that's true again in a yes. corporate context. So, you know, to take your example, if you go to, I can't remember whether it was cricket or soccer match, and, and you feel guilty and you feel stressed and under pressure and feel like the minute that you leave, you must go and, and catch up on emails or during the course of watching that you feel distracted and you're not physically invested in, in what you're doing, then it's a raw measure, but it's an incomplete measure. Um, mm, and I mm. think that to go back in, in a corporate context, you know, we, we, we used to have a problem. We did these corporate mind and body, um, workshops that we'd do a full day workshop and then we'd do over a period of time, a several months, we'd do once a week sessions. And when we first did them, we did them for like big listed companies and the HR people invariably would be engaged by executive or HR. They'd come back and say, listen, you need to stop because people are resigning or threatening to resign. You know, so it was yeah. this like we got people to just stop, to reflect, to take a deep breath, to check in with yourself, to see if you're unhappy or if you're happy. And if you're unhappy, what are the things that you're unhappy with and what could you be doing better or improve upon? And a lot of people were saying, Oh my God, I'm just, you know, I hate my job. <laughs> um, so that, that wasn't a, it wasn't a good business model. It might have been good for people. Um, but it wasn't a good business model. So I think, uh, just to summarize, I think it's easier to sell a solution, but I think it's more complete to sell a process. And and I use the word consciously sell um, because it's about an individual process, which doesn't necessarily mean a radical step change for you immediately. It's about incrementally or incrementalization and improvement of your day-to-day existence with those flashes of freedom. You know, so often people will say, just leave your job, just 
get healthy, just do this and do this and do, and you'll be, and you'll be happy. And, and people yeah. might buy that solution. And a year later, they've done all those things and they say, but like, I don't, I don't feel different. I don't, you know, I, I think we got to start at a very core level about who are you? What do you want? And, uh, what does that mean? And that might involve staying in the same job. Uh, it might involve yeah. staying in the same relationship. It might involve, you know, but seeing them differently. Yeah, so there's there's this narrative, and we'd be lying if we didn't express it. That to be free, you have to be on your own. You know, you have to you have to go out on that entrepreneurial journey. And you know, if if you're in a corporate environment, you're relenting on some of that freedom, but you're paying a price so that you can have other stuff, sure. <laughs> maybe a degree of security, or there is that narrative. And I think that's a it's a it's a dramatic oversimplification of you know what I think what I'm hearing you say is is a far more nuanced issue. Now I I don't I don't want to get into the conversation of freedom and entrepreneurship because I think it's probably overstated. Um, yeah. But how does one find freedom in the structure and rigor and concrete of the typical legacy based corporate environment? I think you've, you've intimated it. I mean, you've alluded to it there. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, the, the notion, I mean, I think very few people are cut out to be entrepreneurs. Uh, and, you know, to take it in an inflection point, um, I often have this discussion about the, the age of entrepreneurs. You know, when is the age of entrepreneurs? Mm. And people will often say, you know, it's young and people, you must cultivate that in, in your kids at early ages so that they can step out and be entrepreneurs from the get go. Um, whereas I, th- I think what's more likely, is that people having been through a corporate experience, having a fundamental understanding of the infrastructure and an appreciation of what is required to run a more significant entity, those are, those people are often better placed to become sure. entrepreneurs in later, sure, that's fair. Uh, later years, you know? So the obvious solution is often not the obvious solution. And, and to go to your point, I think for me, certainly, let me give it from an individual perspective. The things that I really didn't enjoy about corporate were the things that I missed the most. You know, so mm. I, I, I often used to say in the corporate, I'd say, I wish I was a deal maker because like, you know, managing people is, is so challenging. You know, I had a big team and whereas when I wasn't in a corporate, that was one of the things I missed most was having a big yeah. team. It was, was dealing with people, was seeing what an impact you can have on people's lives by, mm. by working with them, by assisting, by cultivating and sometimes by firing them. You know, I, I often would say that, you know, like, and people would, they still do it to this day where people will contact me and say, you know, you said to me that this was, I was doing, uh, that you were doing a, a good thing for, for me by making me leave. I didn't understand. I didn't appreciate. And we're talking years later. Um, the most recent one was decades later. Um, so <laughs> you don't, I didn't appreciate the paycheck. I mean, I, you know, I didn't appreciate how much I was earning and I didn't appreciate the security, as you mentioned, of having it on the 25th of every month. I didn't appreciate the support of the marketing division, the IT, the, so, and all of those things, you can, there's only two ways that you can appreciate that. One is by leaving and missing it. And the second is by developing that self-awareness that, that lets you appreciate what you have rather than focusing on what you don't have in the current moment. And I think that's a huge part of working within organizations, you know, and again, I go back to this idea of interim executives where strategy is about deciding what not to do. In, in our view, you know, so mm, it's mm. like you want to do everything, but you have a limited bandwidth and capacity. So you need to choose what are the things that you're not going to do in order to be able to do some things well. 
And the same is true of an individual. We want everything. We want to be rich and free and happy and this and the other. But in truth, there are very few people that are fortunate enough, if any, um, to have all of those things. So it's about deciding what are the things that you sacrifice in order to maximize on the things that are really important to you. Yeah, so that, that idea of there's going to be a cost somewhere along the line. There's going to be some, choose your pain. There's going to be some yeah. pain uh, somewhere along the line uh, and, and nothing worthwhile happens easily. So at some point in time, you're going to have to do the work. I, th- I think it's an important thing to state. But I'm also, I'm thinking a lot about this notion of, let me give the example of the weather at the moment. So I see people mm-hmm. whining relentlessly about how much it's rainy in Joburg. And it's inevitably the same people who would whine relentlessly about uh, the possibility of water restrictions when, when we haven't had rain for a while. Or, you know, it's too hot and then it's too cold. And then it's, mm. and there's something to be said about the freedom of accepting the context that you're in and not constantly hoping for something else, something different. Mm. You know, it's this, it's, it's accepting that your lawn is your lawn and that not constantly looking at the other person's lawn and, and for the greenness on the other side, you know. How much of of your practice of mindfulness is rooted in getting out of that cycle of comparison and constantly hoping for a different circumstance to the one you're in? Because I think if you're in that cycle, if you're constantly, you know, if it's cold, you want it to be hot, and mm. if it's, you know, then then I don't know how you can ever be free. You're, you're constantly yeah. a victim to your circumstances. For sure, and that continual dissatisfaction is very debilitating. I mean, there's no question about that. And I mean, I I think about that, uh, you reminded me of it now, and I can't remember it exactly, but there's a Buddhist saying, you know, that talks about uh, when I wash the dishes, I wash the dishes, you know. So it's about being absorbed in what it is that you're doing rather than continuously looking around or second-guessing or imagining what better things you could be doing with your times, you know. And in that comes some degree of satisfaction irrespective of what it is that you're doing. And Mm. I think... That's that passage of, of mindfulness, that passage of self-awareness and that passage of having to do, you have to do activities and drills to ingrain that, to make it habitual, to kind of make it your go-to position. And that's, you know, you asked me about freedom earlier. I don't think anybody, least of all me, is absolutely free. But by working hard at it, I think I'm incrementally more free. I'm incrementally more happy. So, you know, go back to all those things I missed at corporate. The one thing I do know is that as a a human being, I'm significantly more happy. So I can Mm. still miss things and Mm. be happier. I can still wish that I had something else and be happier by having an appreciation of what it is that I do have. And I think that you have to learn that. And you have to learn that by doing it daily and by doing it regularly and doing it over uh, the course of time. I'll never forget one of the yoga teachers, early yoga teachers would say, you know, that the practice of yoga is not about mastering a posture. It's about doing what you can often over a period of time. And that's true of mindfulness too. You know, you, you do as much as you can, but you do it often and you do it for long enough and you will improve. There's no, there's no two ways about that. And I think, again, to go back to in a corporate context, I think the same is true. You know, we talk about the puffery of the vision statements and the mission statements and and all of these things. You know, it's laughable when you look at the actuality. If you're a consumer or Mm. client Mm. of a company 
and then you look at their their mission statement and you map it against your experience of of in interacting with that company it's 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 laughable how big that chasm is and that's because they're not doing those little things or not focusing on those little things and the incremental improvement in each of the individual employees in those companies. I mean, I appreciate it's hard. If you've got 50,000 people, it's hard to get sure. them all thinking, operating, and doing uh, the same. But if you're not even trying, it's guaranteed you're not going to succeed. So if you if you continue to complain about the weather and you're not even going to try and change that that fundamental aspect, then you will be dissatisfied. There's no doubt. And most people will be, quite frankly. You know, most people, not that they're unsavable, but most people are not prepared to do the work that's required. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of Season 1. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with, well all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. So when you engage with clients on a strategic journey, and I think you know, from what I can gather, facilitation is a big part of the service suite that you offer. What are the most important questions, especially when we think of corporate clients, the clients that you're talking about that have bulk and, and complexity to deal with? What are the most important questions the most influential people in those businesses can ask themselves from a strategic perspective? Yeah, look, I mean, we, you often get into difficult territory. I mean, just for a second, if I can go back to the interim executive, mm. there's far less latitude. I mean, particularly if you hire up and I mean, if I go in as a temporary CEO of a company, I have far less latitude to impose any kind of cultural will or value system sure. or uh, strategic inflection or change. Um, it's more about holding a position and making sure that everything doesn't fall apart and, you know, you don't hemorrhage people or clients or revenue. But within that, I think that you can or we can and we do, you question what it is that the organization is trying to do. And I think that that's mm. consistent with any kind of facilitation or engagement is to say, you know, what is it that you're trying to do? And then map that against almost a survey. And we often will do this, um, surveying clients and um, employees within the organization, because that's often where the gold lies. I mean, you know, like people say mm. it and it's become a bit trite, but nine times out of 10, the employees in the company know what's wrong. They know how to fix it. And they know what should be done. Mm. Very often, most often, it's a, the executives that are not listening either to the clients or to the employees. And then they're formulating a strategy that they then try and impose down. So, and that's always going to be a fundamental disconnect because then you're trying to do something that people, A, are railing against and are ha unhappy and, and uncomfortable with and or don't have the skill set to actually deliver. You know, so you're going to have this organizational chasm that, uh, that, that exists between the strategy and the organization. And I think going back to my previous point, I think that that's often the biggest problem, but it's quite a delicate dance because you've got to be able to say that or have that conversation without allocating blame. I, I can't, mm. if I'm in mm. facilitating a session with you, I can't say, you know, Mike, it's your fault because the staff are saying, you autocratic or the staff are saying executive or autocratic or the, the, the staff are saying executive's wrong or the companies or the clients are saying we, we used to be happy, but now we're unhappy and something's changed. You know, so that the complexity lies in the messaging and massaging of the messaging more often than what are the actual questions. 
Um, I think that what I'm trying to say is that 99% of the time, the answers are there. It's a question of teasing them out organizationally and making them palatable or edible for the people that you're engaging with. Often that's, you know, at a senior level that you have to deliver those hard truths, but not delivered in a hard manner, if that makes sense. Yeah, I find we used to speak to our clients in the branding and marketing space about this notion of the the gap between what they promise to be as brands and what customers experience in reality. But we don't talk enough about that same chasm internally, this strategic chasm that you're talking about. The the best laid plans of the executive and the reality of of how those plans get executed or met or even before they get met um, are, are understood on the ground. Um, and really, the gaps between those things are the source of all of your pain. Yeah. You know, and there's only two ways to fix that. One is to change what people deliver or change your direction, you know, change your promise. Um, and yeah, equally difficult to do. But I suppose getting past the delusion of, uh, of thinking that everything you ordain uh, as leadership is going to become a reality on the ground is part of the battle of sort of moving ego out of the way and being more practical about about what it is you need to achieve as you rightly say you know so much of the answers and so much of the solutions are embedded in these organizations and in these massive pools of talent already Li- liberating them and getting out of the way so people can do their jobs um, is is an even bigger challenge but the and the converse also applies is that if there's that negativity or there's that uh, dissatisfaction within the employees. You know, I mean, I don't know, like how often have you dealt with a, a sweet, sweet in, uh, executive in any of your experiences when you are unhappy as a client, whether it be, I don't know, medical aid, cell phone, uh, any provider. I mean, it's impossible that the gatekeepers mm. are stacked with gatekeepers that, that then have gatekeepers. So, the executive are not engaging with and therefore not getting the true experience of, of the client. The people who are are the employees. Now, if they not on sides or not bought in or uh, the, the client experience is also significantly different. You know, there's a double mm. chasm almost. You've got a chasm from executive to employees and then a chasm from employee to client. And within that, there's a hell of a lot that can be lost. And And I often say, you know, people talk about the notion of big corporates being like Titanics, that you can't be flexible and maneuverable. But that's also why they crash. You know, it's yeah. it's that, uh, you know, it happens uh, slowly and then all of a sudden. And, you know, it's because of that, because people become inured. They sit in their ivory towers and they're not listening. They're not listening to employees. They're not listening to clients. And then they're surprised collectively at this negative outcome, you know. So, uh, but there's that saying, you know, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. And I think that's true in a corporate context. You know, it's like, it's not like we have to learn a million things. There's probably a, a few, maybe a hundred fundamental things that we just don't learn that are actually quite simple, but we're not self-aware enough or we're not humble enough to acknowledge that maybe we have something to learn. On that note, um, as I am, uh, we have listeners who are interested in digging a little deeper into this notion of mindfulness. But I loved what you said about the practice of, you know, often uh, incremental improvement, habitual commitment to being more present. Where do, where do we start on that journey, Chris? Who who do we look to to guide us through 
some of that, uh, some of the early stages of that discovery. Um, f- feel free to market yourself. <laughs> no, and I mean, it's, you know, it's not something that, uh, that, I mean, I don't have that as a business. Um, I mean, we use the, the techniques in the corporate context, but, and I think part of the reason I don't have it as a business, and this was interesting, is that <laughs> it's, it's actually quite polarized. You know, I think it's akin to religion. It's almost like, religions are and i'm not knocking religions but they they very often will preach peacefulness but the people that they hate and fight against the most are, are fellow religions you know it's kind of like mm. this non sequitur of, of of human nature is that the minute that there's an inflection point in the way that you understand or teach or interpret then i think you're wrong and we're going to have this whole argument and discussion and you know i spit on you because you 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 have a different kind you're of different take on the same religion so I, I found yoga and, and mind, mindfulness and, and mind body experience was, was similar to that. It was kind of like, there's so many different manifestations of it. I mean, I believe in the notion that it, it precedes or predates any religion and religions, some like Hinduism and, and Buddhism have appropriated yogic practices and, and, and meditation practices. Some have rejected it. Um, but the reality is this is a, it's an individual journey. I would actually almost advocate against taking on a guru. I, I would, I would advocate more to the personal passage route that says, you know, study it, learn it, read it, read books, uh, you know, try these, you know, there's a multiplicity of these online applications for meditation practices and, and, uh, breathing practices, you know, try a hundred. Um, find a way that works for you. Uh, you don't have to find a person that works for you. Um, and I know that might be a little bit antithetical. And maybe if I was still in the business, I wouldn't be saying that, you know, I'd say come to mm. us. But uh, I do think that this is a, it's a highly individualized process mm. and practice that's quite complex. So for that reason, rather than just shut up shop and, and don't try, you should do the opposite. You should try harder, try more, try different mm. things, mm. you know, go to different studios, go to different practices, try them all, you know. I don't know if that answers the question, but I think that, in doing that, you're most likely to find a practice that works for you. I mean, one of the things I stopped running when I started doing yoga, but what I actually mm. found is that A, I stopped getting injured by doing yoga and, and running mm. thereafter. And B, the breathing and the use of meditative practices made running my meditation practice, you know? Mm. So there's a beauty in that, you know? I mean, I, I, I mean, I live in one of the most beautiful places in the world. I can go for a run irrespective of the weather. It's, it's different every single day along, along this Atlantic seaboard. And that is my ultimate. My kids will notice if I haven't run today. You know, it's, uh, yeah. so yeah, anyway, I think it's up to you as an individual. No, that makes perfect sense. And I think that's the kind of answer that, uh, that we like to hear on the show. Chris, it's been fascinating thinking of the challenge specifically of corporate leadership through the lens of, of mindfulness. If listeners are keen to get hold of you to understand a little bit more about what you do, where, where's the best place to reach you? Uh, just uh, our website uh, or my email, chris at moksha.biz, is the easiest. I, I will always return emails. I may not always be timeless with them, but I'll always return them. I'm happy to engage. Yeah, I'm happy to direct if I can and to assist and to answer questions if I can. But go back to the previous point, I, I don't think that I have a vegetable of answers. You know, I think uh, <laughs> this is about uh, self-exploration rather than somebody else telling you something. In Hinduism, the the word guru means the light that takes away the dark, um, but it doesn't, that isn't always a positive experience. You know, it, it, there sure. may be something negative that happens in one's life, 
that is the ultimate teacher or becomes a guru. So, you know, it's not, a, it's certainly not about somebody telling you their experience uh, is what I'm trying to say. Chris, been a pleasure to chat and uh, I, I do hope you get an opportunity to enjoy that, uh, that beach soon. Um, oh, and I look forward to connecting next time I'm in Cape Town. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> this afternoon, I, I, the, the one other thing I do as my, as my, um, uh, meditation is I, I'm an open water swimmer. So the last oh, wow. month since we've been back, um, in Cape Town has been the most challenging because it's been stunning and beautiful weather and warm water and all we can ocean, do is look yeah. at it. So this afternoon <laughs> well, I will be there. <laughs> good luck with that. Uh, you're a better man than I am. <laughs> all right. Cheers, Chris. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.